0: Susan and Charlie were chatting as they walked off their Sunday lunch. They weren't talking about the sermon, they were talking about the pastor, John. Now he's not that impressive, is he? says Susan. He fumbles his words, relies on his notes, lacks any oomph. Yep, said Charlie, and I wish he would stop talking about how everything's a struggle. Life's a struggle, marriage is a struggle, preaching's even a struggle. How is that going to do us... Any good, they moaned. Young min and May are also out for a walk. Uh, they too were talking about Pastor John. Now may has been ill for weeks and the docs are suspicious. They were coy about her blood results but clear about the need for further tests. Sounds serious. Young min looks at their three boys playing further up the track and hides a tear. He feels weak and worried. He doubts he has the strength to support Mei to help the boys, or even to trust God. But May says, I really appreciated Pastor John's honesty this morning about his own struggles. It really helped me see how God cares for us in ours. Yes, says young men, it did me the world of good. Now these couples have different expectations of their pastor. (coughs) One expects him to be stoical, strong in himself, weakness hidden. The other expects him to be, well, biblical, weak in himself, but strong in God. Which one are we? It's an important question because God has chosen one of these to be the means by which he comforts and strengthens church members. Which one is it? The historical one or the biblical one? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's going to be the biblical one. But 2 Corinthians 1, 4 to 11 says so. It says that, God strengthens suffering church members through the overflowing comfort he gives suffering church leaders who in their afflictions have learned to rely on God. That's my summary sentence for the whole passage. God strengthens suffering church members through the overflowing comfort he gives suffering church leaders who in their afflictions have learned to rely on God. Now, of course, like I said last time, this applies primarily to pastors, to church leaders, but the principles are secondarily true to all of us. God strengthens others in their suffering through the overflowing comfort that he gives us in ours as we learn to rely on God. Let's get into the passage, 2 Corinthians 1, 4b through to 11. And let's not forget the context that we walked through a couple of weeks ago. Paul's writing to this church in Corinth. He planted it seven years prior to this, but for four years he's been trying to recover it. Fighting factions, false teachers and fornication led Paul to write four times and visit twice. It's not been pretty. But this letter is written to encourage the 80% who are repentant in their recovery as a gospel church and the 20% who are unrepentant to repent or meet the discipline of the apostle when he visits next. And last time in verses 1 to 4, we saw that God was introduced to us as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is praiseworthy. Praiseworthy for who he is, God of all comfort. And praiseworthy for what he does. He kindly comforts us in all our troubles. Now, the rest of the section, verses 4 to 11, provide two more reasons to praise him. And it's all to do with the method by which God chooses to comfort us all. And in this passage, we're going to see that the comfort God pours into pastors has a purpose, a purpose that serves the church. And the trouble he won't remove from pastors has a purpose, a purpose that serves them and the church. All of that has the combined effect of bringing God's praise. So let's get stuck into purpose number one, shall we? Purpose number one essentially is to comfort Others. Verses 4 to 7. Look with me, verse 4. It says, uh, well, let's start from verse 3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. So that there's a here comes a purpose statement, okay? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we comfort, we ourselves receive from God. Now, I like to think in pictures, let me give you a picture to help us understand verse four before I take you through the logical flow, verses five to seven. And what I say, the picture is, pastors serve like champagne pyramid. I know this is gonna sound weird, right? But you know how a champagne pyramid works. Champagne is poured into a single glass at the top of the pyramid of glasses. The volume of champagne poured into the first glass is way more than it can take or need. The champagne then overflows, filling more and more glasses with the same champagne that was poured by the pourer into the first. And that's the effect that God intends the comfort he pours into church leaders to produce in church members. God fills church leaders and through them, God fills us all. Here's how the logic goes. Firstly, those who serve in gospel ministry, apostles primarily in here and then church leaders, they share in what Paul calls in verse five, the sufferings of Christ. That's not the atoning sufferings of Christ. He alone bore those. But the sufferings similar to his and suffered by church leaders for being his, psychological pain, physical pain, Uh, Sorry, physical pain, psychological stress, emotional burdens, spiritual aches are all part and parcel of Christian ministry. But the good news is, secondly, God comforts gospel ministers. That's what the text says. In troubles specific to gospel ministry, God pours an abundant, limitless, overflowing volume of comfort into their hearts. And remember, comfort means strength uh, to come alongside to speak strength into and that's what god does with us that's what god pours into gospel ministers next thirdly we see the gospel minister's comfort is then shared with those that they serve so verse five calls it our comfort the gospel minister's comfort and rightly so it is theirs god gave it to them it's theirs to share And there's enough to go around everyone because, fourthly, we find that shared strength leads to stronger faith in church members. Verse six says, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same things we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Now you see what Paul's saying here, don't miss it. He is saying, you church family will experience the same sufferings that we church leaders suffer. Physical pain, psychological stress, emotional burden, spiritual aches are all part and parcel of following Christ. That means that You're as much in need of comfort and strength as any of your pastors are. The troubles, the distress, the sufferings mentioned in here are serious threats, you see, to our perseverance in the faith. How do we actually persevere? It's through the strength that God provides. And how does God provide it? Well, one of the ways is through the ministry of the leaders here points. That's why Paul says that he can see God's purpose in his afflictions and in his comfort. Through both the affliction and the comfort, God blesses his people. And Paul says, do you know what? I'm fine with that. If it means salvation and endurance in them, he's happy with that. Now, that's gospel ministry. That is biblical ministry. That is not stoical. Now, what does this passage then say? to church members an application four things really very briefly first of all this is another reason to praise God that's the primary application in this passage praise God who strengthens you in your suffering through the overflowing comfort that he gives to suffering church leaders he is to be praised right he demonstrates his love through the shepherds he appoints to point people in church families to Christ Secondly, let the Bible shape what you expect of your leaders. Susan and Charlie's expectations are shaped by their culture, not by the Bible, shaped by what they think, not by what God thinks. But God will view their ill-informed rejection of their pastor and the comfort God intends to give them through him as a rejection of him and his comfort. That is not good. Thirdly, let the abounding comfort of God come to you through your leaders. Let your own suffering, like that of young men and me, create an openness to receive and not despise the weakness you may see or hear in your leaders, there are plenty of them. But God works instead to demonstrate his power through them, which is wonderful, good news for us. Fourthly, pray for your leaders. Don't always assume that they're gonna respond in godly ways to the troubles, distress, and suffering that comes. Pray they'll rejoice in their suffering. Remember God's purposes in it and serve in the strength that God provides. That's how it applies to church. Members, how does it apply to church leaders? Well, to pastors, certainly also to elders, pastoral team, ministry leaders in the church. There are four things in this as well. Again, one, praise and thank God. That's the primary application of this passage. This is the way he's designed all this to work and it does. Secondly, expect to suffer in ways that make us more useful. Christ himself, remember, was made weak, uh, like and tempted, like his brothers, in order that he might help those who are weak and tempted. Hebrews 2, 16 to 18 tells us that. And in the same way, God allows us to suffer at times in order to help us serve the church better. Let's not fight that off. Let's not despise our sufferings. They're not for nothing and they won't be in the future. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've looked back at even hard times in my life and whether out of heart or regret, um, wished it hadn't happened. Some experiences were suffered, of course, because of my own sin. Some experiences suffered because of someone else's. But God makes the former forgivable and the latter useful. Uh, no more, more than that, beneficial. Because God's grace takes... Even things like the fretful and frightening experience of the kid living in the turbulent whirlwind of an alcoholic dad and gives him an understanding of where sin leads so he can serve others better. And thank God for it. And God's grace takes the 42-year-old's disappointment in his ongoing struggle with anger and turn it into perseverance in personal prayer and in ministering graciously to the struggling member who can't shake off a particular vice of their own and be fine with it. Whatever our struggle is, don't despise it. We might well miss the purpose of God and the mystery of his providence that he has for it in making much of Jesus. Thirdly, expect to be comforted in ways that bring you joy. Besides Jesus himself, glorious in himself, Paul seems to have suffered more than anyone else In ministry has suffered, but I've never read of anyone who rejoiced as much as Paul did. God's comfort and God's purposes, the knowledge of God's purposes, are key to that joy. And fourthly, expect to be used in ways that bring others joy. I mean, all our suffering has ministry potential. All of us, as we suffer, are vehicles of God's comfort. There's a lot of potential Energy and comfort and love and care wrapped up in our experience and ready to be shared. So, praise God. The comfort God pours into pastors and church leaders has a purpose. To serve us like that champagne pyramid. Praise God that the trouble he won't remove as well from pastors also has a purpose. This is point two. It's to make us rely on him. If you look with me at verses 8 to 11, in this section, Paul gives us um, an example of the trouble that he himself has experienced. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Now I've got a picture to go with this point too before we follow, (coughs) excuse me, the flow of verses eight to 11. And I want to say pastors serve best when wrung like chamois leather. Okay, I know this sounds so bizarre, right? But anyway, bear with me. You know what chamois leather is, right? If you're washing your car and if you let your car dry in the sun after washing it, you get those dry kind of, they're not lime scale, it's lime scaly looking deposits all over, right? You prevent, that by drying the car well with a chamois right but no chamois is big enough to dry an entire car a chamois works best when you wring it out regularly you get the water out by wringing it hard not so hard that you ruin it not so hard that you rip it but hard enough that you can use it again to good effect Now, that's the effect I reckon God intends suffering to produce in those who serve as church leaders. God brings church leaders, really, to an end of themselves through suffering so that they rely on him. Now, that's what we find in verses 8 and 9 when Paul describes what is essentially a near-death experience for him. We're not told exactly what happened. We don't need to know that. We only know that it happened in Asia, somewhere in modern-day Turkey, and to know how he felt, how it felt. <clears throat> now, when you look at the terms that Paul used to describe it, it's fascinating. Verse A talks about great pressure, and here a word is used. It's used to describe an overloaded ship taking on water, or um, a camel or a donkey that's lost its legs under the weight of what it's carrying. Of the, of the burden it's carrying, okay? It's great pressure, hard to bear, right? Then in verse 8b, he talks about this pressure being far beyond their ability to endure. So this isn't something that he felt he could just ride out in his own strength, whatever this suffering was. No, nor was it a, a situation anyone that he knew could prevent. That's what leads to what we see in verse 8 at the end and to 9, we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Now this suffering so hard that Paul thought, well that's it, His time's up. This is him being well and truly wrung out. But Paul was brought to the end of himself. And verse 9b to 10 tell us why. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Now, that's the purpose God has had for Paul's suffering, to help him, the great apostle even, to rely on God. Not in himself, and that was a danger. Self-reliance is a curse in Christian life and ministry, even for people like the great apostle Paul. God used his suffering as he uses ours to awaken or increase our reliance on him the only one who's truly strong and truly able to save and he is the God who raises the dead he's the one who is truly reliable now notice the tense in this section Uh, the grammaticians will love this this God talks about uh, Paul talks about uh, God who raises the dead not in a past tense he doesn't say God who raised Christ though he did that gloriously it's present continuing. He's the God who is still raising the dead. But in what way? Like, does Paul mean this figuratively? Well, probably because that was Paul's experience. He didn't actually die. He just felt like his time was up. But if He was so near death that to be rescued from it, it felt like a resurrection. But in reality, it is also true. Paul is more certain of this, it seems, having suffered than he would have if he hadn't. Being in that that um, feeling like he had received the sentence of death and having no hope that he would be rescued from it made him depend on God all the more. Now there's an additional purpose sneaked in here to a church that's recovering from the deceit of these kind of jewish Ted talking braggers, a church that has almost winced at Paul's sufferings as something unseemly or weak or cursed by God. How could he possibly be an apostle of God and so important in the kingdom if he's suffering this way? But Paul invites them to join him in prayer at the end of this section. For what? For ongoing deliverance and ongoing sufferings. It's very clever. It's a gentle reminder to them That he and they, as they follow Christ, will share in his sufferings, as he says in verse 5. And also, that as they do, they will share in God's comfort and God's deliverance. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf, for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So Paul says, the more people we have asking God to deliver us from the hard things that we'll experience on account of his name, the more people will have thanking and praising God when he actually does deliver, because he definitely does. It's very good. It's very clever. Now, how do we apply this? What does this passage say to church members? Well, first of all, praise God. That's the primary application of this entire section in verses 1 to 11. Praise God for these reasons. Praise God for helping the leaders who serve you rely on him more as he delivers them from troubles. This is God's kindness to the churches. Uh, A church member's faith in God will be greater if that pastor's reliance on God is greater. There's a linked effect in here. Secondly, rely on God. God uses suffering in our lives to help us rely on him in the same way that he does in ministry, uh, for those in ministry. And self-reliance is dangerous. No one is strong enough to deliver themselves. We need to rely on God, all of us, the God who raises the dead and has the power to deliver us when he wills, as he does. Now, I do want to add that this reliance on God applies as much to the times when suffering lingers longer than we would like. I mean, God didn't remove Paul's affliction straight away he took him to a point of, well, despair and distress. And God doesn't promise to remove ours instantly either. But in his good purposes, he is in those sufferings shaping us and our faith, and he is preparing us to use it, to minister those lessons and that faith to others. Thirdly, pray for your pastors. You're helping them in their ministry by praying for them. You know, whether you're a Susan or a Charlie, fed up with the guy you've got, or a young man and may, served well by the guy you've got, pray for your pastors and help them be all that God wants them to be. Use passages like Acts 20 or 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 and 3. Turn those texts into prayers for them. Anything they do that's good as well, anything praiseworthy that's achieved, give thanks to God. Because anything like that is, as Paul calls in verse 11, gracious favor granted in answer to the prayers of many anything good in your pastors is not their doing it's god's and he deserves the glory that's how it applies to church members how does it apply to church leaders well three quick things one we praise god he loves us enough not to leave us as we are but to make us more effective in the ministry he calls us to do And while he does that in all the positive ways of education, encouragement and joy, he does it just as much in our experience of darkness when we're being wrung and made ready for use again. Secondly, rely on God. I don't think I know a single pastor who would say, I'm totally self-sufficient in ministry, I've got it made, I'm competent in myself to do this. It's much more common to hear pastors express the opposite. We know our insufficiency for the task largely, but... Can I ask, as I ask myself, do you pray? I think prayerlessness, in all likelihood, betrays that we're more self-reliant than we realise. We do the tasks more than we get on our knees. That's dangerously self-reliant. Please would you pray for me in this, and all of us in pastoral ministry and church leadership in the church family, that we would be people of prayer. Thirdly, I, oh, I guess I've just done it. Invite people to pray for you. In our church family, I'm so grateful that many do. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for the way in which you pray for those in leadership and life of the church. But, church leaders, we need to be much better at inviting more and more people to pray and to fuel their prayers, make them help people to pray more specifically, so that in the end, the amount of thanksgiving that goes to God. Greatly increases. More praise to Him through more people praying is good because God is the one who does the work. If you're watching this and you're not a Christian, I wonder how this sounds. Listening in, I wonder how you cope with suffering. I wonder if you've ever been brought to that point where, with the Apostle Paul, you've you've maybe maybe kind of experienced suffering in some way that's brought despair, or maybe you're really afraid. Of the time when that will happen. Maybe a time when you yourself will approach death. And you worry about what's next. Can I encourage you to get in touch and ask us about this. So that we can point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. About whom this passage speaks. The one who suffered on our behalf. The one who was delivered. Not from that death. But through death by God the Father himself, raised up to new life, having died for the sins of those who put their trust in him, so that we might know forgiveness, so that we might know his presence with us, so that we might know his comfort and his help in times of trial. If you don't know him, put your faith and trust in him. Confess your sins and come to Christ. He alone is our strength.